You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Rector on a, well, it's a beautiful day. It's cold, it's cloudy, <laughs> but it's still a beautiful day. It's partly cloudy according to the National Weather Service. Oh, they've moved it over to mostly cloudy. Uh, today's date is uh, November 11th. This show will broadcast on November 12th. Today's high is going to be 59 degrees. And tonight's low is going to be 34 degrees. We did have a frost early this year. Our first frost was yesterday morning. I went out and took a picture of it before it quickly went away. It wasn't that cold. It got cold enough to make a lovely sparkling white frost out on my meadow. But my coleus plants on my front porch were not even harmed by it. So let's just say we got to about 31 and a half degrees out in the open. And anywhere close to the house was warm enough to protect even truly tender plants. But as we mentioned last week, it's certainly time to start thinking about where those tender plants are going to go. A little side note, I brought one of the coleus in just because I was a little worried about it. It's a great, big, beautiful specimen. Guess what? There was an ant's nest in the pot. So just a reminder, <laughs> as we tell you, um, check them for ants before you bring them into the house. And if that is the, the easiest case, way to check them is just with his still outside, flood the, the, the soil <laughs> with water, flood it, flood it, flood it, and... If there's ants in there, you'll know immediately. Yes, you will. Or if you bring it inside and it's warm, you'll know immediately. So it went right back out on the porch. By the way, in the nursery business, one of the simplest ways that we deal with ants in a nursery pot, which is a common problem, is we, at least at our nursery, we take a trash can that we keep just for this purpose. A very large bucket or tub will do the same thing. We fill it with water and we submerge the pot, plant and all, into the water completely submerging all of the soil. Sometimes we'll submerge the whole plant, it's fine. We leave it there long enough, which means several hours, to completely penetrate every airspace of that soil and drown out the ants. And then we know, and this works like a charm, by the way, within a few hours, they're all dispersed up to the top of the trash can or whatever, and you can wash them off and they're done. You've gotten the queen out, you've taken care of the problem. But just a quick reminder, before you bring those plants in, Check them for pests, not just ants. Check them for aphids and things like that. A good rinse, a good soaking will generally reveal uh, and take care of anything that could be a problem. Thursday, going to be 62 degrees. Thursday night, 41. We're getting away from the frost pattern and into a light rain pattern. Friday, there's a chance of rain. Only going to be about 60 degrees, and it's only about a 30% chance of rain. Friday night, a 40% chance of rain, only dropping down to 47 degrees. Saturday, slight chance of rain, 20%, 66 degrees, going to be the high. Saturday night, clearing up, uh, partly cloudy, 43 degrees. Sunday going to be 66 and mostly sunny. And it looks like uh, Monday, mostly sunny, about 67. Night temperatures around 47. Chance of showers, but a warmer uh, storm on Tuesday with a high near 69. The unfortunate news is that this does not look like a significant rainfall pattern as they had kind of been thinking it would be. Uh, Daniel Swain, who's one of the 
best meteorologist to follow on Twitter, author of the Weather West blog, says, technically, model ensembles, in other words, the combination of the atmospheric models that they use for predicting the weather, have backed off substantially on the previously expected precipitation across California during the rest of November. Widespread soaking and likely fire season ending rain is still likely across the northern third of the state, but totals closer to the Bay Area, the Sacramento Valley, will be lower and Southern California will remain dry. So that is unfortunate, I guess, if we were looking for something to finally put out those fires and, um, and prevent further ones. Uh, looks like November is going to be dry. October was dry, so we're on the start of a second dry rainfall year, which I guess technically puts us into a drought. I don't remember what the official designation for that is. Just keep in mind, we can certainly catch up quickly, but so far off to a dry start. As for those low temperatures, interesting to note that in the Bay Area, a couple of sites actually had record low temperatures on Tuesday, November 10th, the morning that we had a frost. Half Moon Bay, you know where that is? They got the 32 degrees, which tied a previous record. Oakland, downtown Oakland was 42 degrees, which was one degree lower than the old record that had been set in 1978. And King City, 28 degrees. The old record was 29 degrees in 1992. So chilly morning and then back into a warm and rainy pattern. So <clears throat> with our dryness here, mm. our lack of rain, what should people be doing about well, watering. Watering. Well, you need to keep watering those young vegetable plants you put in. The soil is not hydrated. It's uh, the only water the plants are getting is what you're providing them. Now, the evapotranspiration rate is plummeting now with overcast weather and much colder temperatures and shorter days, but there's nothing augmenting it except what you're providing. So if you just planted some broccoli, Lettuce, if it's in a container, especially with soil that drains out quickly, you should probably keep watering. I mean, we really need to do is poke your finger in there and see what the, what the soil feels like. But I would guess, let's say you're a person who's doing her very first vegetable garden in a large container on her driveway, and you filled it with a nice fancy soil that you bought from your local garden center that they delivered to you, you're probably needing to water that, if your experience is anything like mine right now, about every five to seven days for plants that have been in for a couple weeks, Newly planted plants, check daily, probably only need it every two to three days. So keep an eye on them. This, your soil is gonna determine the frequency of irrigation and the urgency is past. If three weeks ago we were in the 90s with 5% humidity. Now we're in the 50s and 60s with significantly higher humidity. You still gotta keep an eye on it because we have no rainfall happening and nothing really significant in the way of rain, at least through this weekend, at least what they're telling us now, this looks more like showers, not rain. The Bohart Museum of Entomology. UC Davis hosts- um, We're gonna talk about bugs? Yeah, let's talk about bugs. Hosts one of North America's largest collections of insects from around the world. Bohart Museum is also home to the California Insect Survey, a storehouse of the insect biodiversity of California's deserts, mountains, coast, and central valley. Now, this PSA I'm reading was published a year plus ago, and it says here, for information on visiting hours, tour reservations, educational programs, call, blah, blah, blah. Don't bother. Instead, I would suggest, since they're closed to the public, go to bohart.ucdavis.edu, bohart.ucdavis.edu, because they have phenomenal resources there. And if you're a family with a kid that's interested in bugs, they've got something there for you to look at. It's all kinds of stuff on there. The, um, here we go. Right now, they've got an article on could giant Asian hornets establish in California? The gift shop is now online. 
They have videos and they have all kinds of stuff there. Dog face, butterfly, habitat video. Stuck at home, bored, stressed, find some roly polies and watch bees. Coming soon, a list of insects that every kid and kid at heart should know. That's just on the front page of their website. That's bohart.ucdavis.edu. Well, you are going to, uh, well, I should, I should preface this by saying to our listeners, you know, Don always surprises me with things. And, and sometimes it's a challenge. This time it was just a little confusing because he said, we need to do nursery industry updates. And I'm going, these are home gardeners. Why do they need to know about nursery updates? But he was right. We need to know. So Don, tell us about these. Well, these are uh, the reason I do these sometimes is because you go out to your garden center and you walk over to look up the selection of pottery that they have, and the shelves are one third full. Just one example of how, what's happening right now. Well, first of all, I do want to mention for listeners in the Sacramento Valley and in the foothills, particularly on the Sierra side, Isley Nursery in Auburn, longtime nursery in downtown Auburn. First of all, Earl Isley passed away a couple of weeks ago in his 80s, a wonderful gentleman, and the family decided to sell the nursery. Uh, and they sold the nursery to Green Acres, which is a, so this is the good news for you over there, is it is still going to be a nursery. More recently, when nurseries have sold in the area, they've been you know, torn down and turned into something else. Green Acres is a privately owned small chain of nurseries in the Sacramento area, garden centers, I should say, and they're buying Isley Nursery in downtown Auburn. It will become Green Acres Garden Center. Um, the only reason that that's relevant to those of you anywhere away from Auburn is that Isley was an old-fashioned grower, not only a retail nursery for the folks in the region, but also delivered bedding plants, vegetables and flowers and little six packs and ground cover flats and things like that to small garden centers and hardware stores all over Northern California. I would talk to the drivers who are mostly old fishing buddies of Earl's about what their itinerary had been for that particular day. And it was not uncommon for them to have just done four or 500 miles dropping off at some little hardware store in Bernie and some little garden center in McKinleyville. And I mean, they were everywhere. And they were all the little tiny mom and pop types. The very first order of bedding plants that came into my garden center in Davis in August of 1981 was from Isley's Nursery. So it's unlikely that the new owners will continue that wholesale division to that degree. Uh, we've got to realize that Earl was an old-fashioned guy who sometimes did things that weren't maybe making as much money as they could. So there will be some supply chain issues because possibly because of this closure, because it adds to um, another bedding plant grower down in the in the valley area, which was bought up about three years ago. Um, well, pretty big bedding plant grower for for nurseries in the Sacramento area and the East Bay. Um, and uh, that one was completely taken out of bedding plants. Uh, that one is going over to production of fruit trees and containers. So a whole bunch of small nurseries and even medium-sized nursery chains suddenly found they had lost a supplier. So there'll be some interesting disruptions, changes, which is common in our industry, but uh, the, the particular part of the industry affected here will be the bedding plants, the six packs of flowers, the six packs of vegetables. Other growers will certainly jump in to try and fill that, but they're at capacity with the increase in demand for vegetable plants at the start of this year with the pandemic and uh, this continuing high demand for vegetable plants. There'll be some interesting supply chain issues there. Also, I suspect there'll be a continued trend away from the small six packs of what you might call the slower turnover flowers. One of the things that Isley's did, which was really unusual, is things like Shasta daisies. 
delphiniums, uh, foxgloves, hollyhocks, a lot of perennials and biennials in six packs, the small packs. And uh, my guess is that um, those are low turnover. Those are not high profit items. So those types of things are probably with all the wholesale growers at capacity, churning stuff as fast as they can. Some of those things may be harder to get. And that'll be just another supply chain issue that you're encountering. For example, pottery. I did a pottery order in August and I received about 60% of what I ordered. Turned around and ordered again, did better, got about 70% of what I ordered. Got a list from that supplier, they have about 40% of what I'm after right now. And that's just me, but the local hardware store is facing the same thing. And so is every garden center and every hardware store everywhere you're listening. Because the supply chain for pottery extends all the way to China, Malaysia, Vietnam, Italy, and uh, imports of those goods are, is, uh, let's just say they're, they're, there's issues getting them here, issues getting them distributed. So that's just happening. It's just something to be patient about. There are seasonal items that have been a real problem for a lot of us, getting seed packets. At one point, I only got 50% of what I was after. Our seed grower, our seed grower, seed distributor said, we're just going to stop producing all the lower turnover things so we can fulfill the demand for the higher turnover things. They took about a third of the products off their list for the spring. Most of those are back now, finally, but there was a, just a decision they made. Our bag goods suppliers did the same thing. They needed to get potting soil, compost, steer manure, a couple other key items out to everybody, so they just stopped bagging bark. They just stopped bagging the low turnover items. And there was a period where a lot of those things were unavailable. I haven't actually been able to get organic lawn food, which is my primary sale point on lawn food, since June. And my guess is I won't see any until spring because it was just a, a, a bag shortage of all things. I mean, that, that's the supply chain issue. The reason I mentioned this is that there's a couple of things that people are running around looking for that have been in very short supply and are going to probably continue to be in short supply because of high demand and the lag in production. Citrus trees. Citrus availability has been significantly less than demand. Of avocado trees in Northern California, practically non-existent at retailers, particularly the kinds we like to sell, which are the hardy ones, because the growers are just churning out the Haas and the other you know, more tender ones for the Southern California market. Uh, so those are gonna be uh, just in short supply probably for 12 to 18 months. And that's just kind of the way it goes. There's not, you can't get the plant to grow any faster and the demand is higher than the supply. And then finally, uh, the reason this becomes relevant is that with the continued high demand for edibles, extremely high demand for anything in that category of what we call edibles, vegetables, fruit trees, fruit vines, berries, uh, perennial vegetables, all that kind of thing. There's very distinct seasonality to some of those. Late November is when the berries, artichokes, and asparagus all arrive at garden centers. That's it for the year, okay? And once they're gone, um, many of those, we probably won't be able to resupply. And if the continued demand in vegetables and that kind of thing goes the way it has been going, they'll sell out very quickly. We sell bare root onions at our garden center. I upped my order by 30%. In 72 hours, I had sold out of one variety completely. I've reordered, we'll see what I get. And that's kind of the way things are going this year. So a little patience with your garden center and more to the point, um, keep in touch with them about the availability. And when they call you and say, hey, those onions are in, Go right down. <laughs> Don't wait three days, four days, because with these upcoming different seasons, there'll be a shorter duration of availability and a faster turnover in a lot of these things, particularly if it's something that makes food. That's what it really comes down to.
You just said you had bare root onions? Yep. What the heck are bare root onions? They're onions that are grown in flats in greenhouses. This is kind of old fashioned and they cost a few pennies a piece and uh, you can, it's by far the easiest way to get onions and grow them. Uh, you, they look like basically like the green onions you buy in the grocery store. It looks like those bundles of, of scallions that you buy. And uh, you take them and you, you pull a trench in your nice loose soil and you pop them in a few inches apart. You backfill over them with the soil you just moved out of the way. You water once and, and under normal conditions, if we have anything close to average rainfall, pretty much all you need to do. And then you, they grow and they grow nicely through the winter and through the spring and along about April to May, depending on the variety, they start to form the bulbs and they look like they're dying down and you kind of change your watering pattern. In the case of most of them, you, um, uh, you harvest in about May to June. In the case of the longer ones, like Walla Walla, you harvest in June or July. So bare root onions are a thing we do in the Sacramento Valley in the fall. Many places where you're listening, you plant them in the late winter, early spring. We get ours from a local grower who does them down in the Akempo area and just delivers boxes of them. They look like boxes full of green onions. That's what they are. And uh, they, they're perishable. They got to get in and out pretty quickly. It's about a two week window in which we sell tens of thousands of onion plants. Uh, those of you listening in other areas, you can contact companies, let's say like Dixondale Farms down in Texas. They ship millions of onions all over the country. They don't even begin shipping until January. So most other places, you don't plant these until late winter or early spring and you're harvesting midsummer. We're in a unique area, the Sacramento Valley and interior Southern California, I believe. Uh, also is like likewise, where you can plant these in November and uh, the winter rains carry them through and we get to harvest earlier. So if you've got a vegetable garden and you're planting regular old red burger or Stockton yellow onions, you'll be harvesting them May to June just in time to go ahead and pop some peppers in in that part of your vegetable garden. So we actually can cycle them with our summer vegetables quite readily. The other thing we plant right now, although it's not bare root, they're just bulbs, is garlic. And we do it the same way. You just take a garlic head, break it into cloves, take the cloves, put them three to four inches apart in a sunny place in your vegetable garden. Each clove grows into and forms a head. So you harvest that a little later, typically June, perhaps July. So just be, be, be aware that the garlic needs a little bit longer, at least here. Uh, so it might interfere with your tomato planting, but you still have time to stick in a couple late peppers or an eggplant in that spot when you've harvested your garlic. So the onion family, we plant here in the fall. Uh, other areas, you plant them primarily in the late winter or spring. Okay, so the next up on our topics is the Keith Davy pistache discussion. <laughs> now, do you want me to read that or do you want to read that? Uh, we'll just go through it. It's, uh, it's an example of the, the seasonality and the production cycles of our business. So a customer came in, customers have been coming in over the last couple of weeks to look at our pistache trees used to be to buy a Chinese pistache, which has spectacular fall color. Um, and it's one of the most popular non-native trees in our area. It's the tree that's turning color right now. Blazes of red and orange and yellow. They're all along the highway. Uh, a lot of areas I have them on my property where they never even get irrigated, so they're very tough. And seedling grown Chinese pistache, you have a 50-50 chance, male or female. They're equally divided. It's a dioecious tree, so you have male and female separate trees. And the fall color is highly variable. Yellow, purple, orange, bright red. Well, everybody wants the bright red. And most people want male trees because they don't want the red berries that are very 
produced in very high numbers on the female trees. Well, I like them on my farm because they draw birds, cedar waxwings and things are always on my female Chinese pistache trees. They do drop and they do reseed and they're a bit of a nuisance. So people generally want bright red male cultivars. Well, there is one, it's called Keith Davy. It's a male Chinese pistache and it has reliable bright red fall color. It has to be grafted in order to grow it into a tree. It doesn't root and of course you can't grow it from seed because the seedlings wouldn't be the same as the parent. And so they graft them onto a rootstock. And it takes about, I think it's about two years to get a full-size tree from the time you graft it. I may be wrong, it might be even longer than that. So it's a slow process and they always sell out, but the fall color is absolutely reliable on this variety. So people coming into nurseries to look to, to see whether your Chinese pistache trees are going to have the fall color thereafter, you don't need to do that anymore. If the nursery you shop at sells the Keith Davy Chinese pistache. They're all clones, like we talked about, I think, last week. You know, what is a cultivar or a clone? It's all the same plant that's been multiplied out, and it's all going to be consistent. At least genetically, it has the right stuff to be a nice bright red tree. Um, well, they sell out pretty quickly. Now Chinese pistachios are turning color all over town. Guess what? We've, we've sold out of 15-gallon Keith Davy. Mm -hmm. And so this, these customers are disappointed. We still have 5-gallon, but we aren't going to have any more 15-gallon until next summer. That's how long it's going to take for the next crop to come along. So this gets into a lot of jargon and technical stuff that isn't clear to non-professionals. We sell it so people get exactly what they want. We, we know what people are after and we sell that one. The, the graft rate is poor. You only get about 50% of them to take when they graft them. So it's a complicated thing to produce and so not every grower is willing to do it, but it takes a while and it's a crop. And so when people come in, they're perplexed by why you can't get more the answer is it's a crop, it's growing, we'll get more next July. And the next question is, but isn't this the best time to plant them? Well, sure, but they're not there. <laughs> so um, our, I'm in an industry where a lot of what we sell is essentially a seasonal crop. And uh, they waited till now to go looking for them because thought fall was the best time to plant them, but the availability of these was late summer and uh, August, September, and they pretty much sold out into October. So. There's a whole bunch of concepts involved here, but the main one is to remind you all that if you're after a particular thing, you should probably, one, have some flexibility about size, and two, contact your garden center about when they'll be available. Uh, I just had another customer who had done a whole lot of research, chosen a small tree for her backyard, the Washington Thorn Hawthorn. Wonderful tree. First question she might have wanted to ask before she went to all this trouble was, is this available? Because in all the years I've been in business, I've managed to stock that, source that plant for people maybe twice. Most growers just don't do it. I can't really explain to her why they don't do it. It just, but the answer is it doesn't turn over enough. It isn't, you know, they're just not out there. And so doing a lot of internet research and, and choosing something and getting kind of fixated on it and then going to order it, this isn't like ordering a box of cornflakes or the pair of shoes that you wanted or whatever. This is something that either is in production or not and uh, growers may or may not choose to do it, and it's a crop. And so even if it is in production, the cycle of its availability can be problematic. Great myrtles, uh, in, for example, sell primarily when they're in bloom. By now, my growers are pretty much out of a lot of varieties because they sold out back in July, and then the customer comes in saying, I'm looking for Muscogee in a 15 gallon. They say, well, they're out. Isn't this the right time to plant them? Sure, but they sold when they were in bloom. So we're getting back to flexibility and keeping in touch with your garden center about the seasonality of different crops and things that we sell. And 
the other thing is then when people say, isn't this the best time to plant them? Well, the best time to plant it is when you have it in your hot little hand. Yeah. So even if you are planting a deciduous tree in the summer, you can still plant that tree. Yes. It's, it's not going to harm it at all. As long as you give the proper aftercare. This gets into one which I'll call a garden myth, which is that fall is the best time for planting, or that in some cases it move, morphs into fall is the only time for planting. Fall begins on September 21st, right? And in the first week of October, we were in the upper 90s with 5% humidity. And that continued all the way pretty much through October. So even into the first week of November, we were above average and, and very low humidity, above average temperature and very low humidity. And we've had three episodes of dry north winds here. And I believe Southern California has had two or three episodes of Santa Ana winds. They tend to happen at the same time ours do. During that time frame, managing the irrigation of a newly planted plant is very challenging. So it's fall technically all through the month of October, but it can be a difficult time to plant here. I know of one native plant uh, nursery in Southern California area who kind of shifted his advice to planting in the winter uh, because you'd be planting going into the actual rainfall period down there rather than just using the calendar and saying fall is best because the days are shorter and cooler. Much of California, September, October are hot, dry, and windy, and it's less predictable. I can predict what the weather will be like in July, and I can tell you exactly how much to water. It's more challenging in some ways to plant in October or even this year into early November because of the vagaries of our, our weather and the fact that we almost always have dry and gusty winds at some point during that six-week period, the first half of fall. So don't fixate too much on a particular time of year. It's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when I hear master gardeners and others telling people, wait till fall, wait till fall, as if there's some magic window for planting there. Uh, plant when you can give the plant the proper aftercare. Plant it when you'll be able to monitor and manage the watering correctly, regardless of the temperature, wind, or humidity. Because I have planted, of course, many times in July and August, and I just know that that plant will need to be checked and watered in a particular way because of the temperatures at that time of year and the fact that I completely control the watering that it gets. Your life is easier in some ways if you plant in late fall going into the winter, um, but there's a period after about two to three inches of rain at least with our soils here in the Sacramento Valley, which tend to have more silt and in many cases more clay in them, clay loam soils with two to three inches of rain, you can no longer dig a proper planting hole unless they've drained out carefully. So well, we're delighted to have you planting in November, December, January, you need to be able to dig a proper planting hole. That narrow window between perfect temperature and, and, and lack of wind and humidity and soil too muddy is about a two week period. And unless you've got that two-week period on your calendar to get it all planted, you may be out of luck for the year. But bear in mind that every season has advantages and drawbacks. Every season is suitable for planting if the soil is workable and you'll be able to provide the plant the aftercare that it needs, primarily proper attention to the watering. So I have a, you know, I like to MacGyver things. And, and I have a workaround for the too muddy situation. If you know where you're going to want to plant your plant, and you go out there where it isn't too muddy before the rains start and you dig a hole and you put a pot in it, just a pot with a couple of rocks in it to keep it from blowing away. And now you've got your hole already dug. So then when it's time to actually plant the plant, all you do is you go out there and you pop the, the empty one in and you put the plant in and put the soil in and you didn't have to dig a hole. Would that work? 
you can put down a tarp. There's a couple things you can do. In, in August, our question for people when we're delivering something and they're having someone plant it is, please have, have you watered? And uh, by which I mean specifically water the place where this is going, not just is the sprinkler system running, because whoever is going to plant it for you is going to really have a hard time getting into soil that hasn't been watered in August, <laughs> September, October. So that's the one thing is soaking the soil a few days ahead of time when it's in, in the hot season or the dry season, I guess I should call it. And then if you're getting into the rainy season and something isn't there or you're not ready for it, just putting a tarp over the area to reduce the saturation of that particular part of the yard would be appropriate. You should get the soil to the proper texture for planting. And if it's too muddy, if, if you can't dig a proper planting hole, it happens here. We have wet years, remember those? Where the soil is saturated because storms come on five to seven day intervals. If it's slicking the side of the hole when you're trying to dig it with a shovel, that's bad for the soil structure. And so you don't want to be doing that. You want to wait till it's drained out and you can break up the soil. So just wait, be patient. Good news is in colder weather and overcast weather, especially with plants that are going dormant, they can just sit there in the pot. You don't have to worry about them. But the soil should be at the right texture for digging a hole and planting. And uh, you don't, shouldn't have to use a jackhammer <laughs> to dig the hole. And you shouldn't be big, digging up big globs of mud when you dig the hole. It should be a workable soil. So that's all about outdoor stuff. Yep. And the next little segment that Don handed me, I thought was very interesting. These are some common questions that are arising in Facebook groups right now. And he, he thought these might be of general interest to everyone. And people are asking things like, what is wrong with my lavender? What is wrong with my rosemary? What is wrong with my basil plants? They're in houseplants. They're growing them as houseplants and they want to know what's wrong. Well, that's Don, the problem. what's wrong? That's the problem right there, which is that most of those are not suitable as houseplants for one reason or another. And it, it frustrates me when I see them being sold indoors, mostly in grocery stores and cute little pots. Um, and, and people don't know when they buy them that it really isn't gonna be successful indoors. If it's an outdoor plant for full sun, the chances of it being successful as a house plant are very slim. Uh, just the other day, I was in our, our one of our better run grocery stores, better run in the sense of has a great florist department, and they had some beautiful quart pot size, bigger than a four inch of miniature roses in full bloom. They're <laughs> lovely plants. Um, they'll continue to bloom indoors for two to three weeks. I suspect they'll hold the blooms that are opening anyway. And they will probably have spider mites within about a week of you getting them because that's just just common with, with roses indoors. And then they'll just sort of slowly decline from that point forward. No, they won't continue to bloom indoors, not even if you set them in the window. Not, not well. They might continue to try, but it won't be very attractive or effective. And so my hope is that people who are buying those will enjoy the bloom for a few days keep them watered indoors because they'll dry out pretty quickly. They're very root bound when you buy them that way. It's a great series, by the way. The varieties they're using for that, for, indoor, for miniature roses in pots, are outstanding varieties, generally pretty disease resistant, all that kind of thing, but they want to be in the sun. And you don't have anything close to the sun indoors. You would have to put um, LED lights right on these things to get them to continue to grow and bloom indoors. Anywhere you're listening in California, unless you're up at a high elevation, you can just put those outside. You can move them to a bigger pot and watch them go kind of dormant like roses do and they'll flush out nicely in the spring and be great garden plants. You can put them right out in the garden and they'll do the same thing. I've been planting roses for the last couple of weeks out in a new area that I'm planting. They're putting on a little growth, but they're also the older leaves are beginning to yellow because of the temperature changes and they're getting ready to go dormant. Roses in California don't go fully 
drop all their leaves type of dormant. It's very common for them to have leaves and even try to bloom somewhat through the winter, but they're not going to be in their full peak of attractiveness. And lavender, rosemary, and basil are not indoor plants. That's just what it comes down to. You can keep a basil plant going long enough to use it up for say six weeks, eight weeks indoors. It is not going to be a successful house plant. And so your best bet if you're in USDA zones nine or 10 are to put the lavender and the rosemary outside. They're perfectly cold hardy here. Uh, I think that's true even into zone eight, but you better check there if you're in the USDA zone category. Sunsets, we're talking zones eight, nine, 14 to 24. They're fine outside. And the basil is frost tender. So just use it up and be done with it and just buy a new one when you're ready for some more fresh basil. So all of the things we've been talking about, the rosemary and the roses, they're all perennials or shrubs. They're all woody shrubs, yeah. Okay, and are there any vegetables that are perennial? Yes, and you should, if you're an avid vegetable gardener, I strongly suggest you make a space for these. Uh, depending on your climate, they'll grow, the ones I'm gonna mention grow almost anywhere, artichokes, um, I know there's, there's zones where it's too cold for them to go through. So in those areas, you buy the annual seed grown strains and hope for the best. Here in California, artichokes are one of our specialties. They love this climate. They are from a Mediterranean climate and we are a Mediterranean climate, meaning cool, wet winters, dry, hot summers. That's what artichokes love. In fact, what they really love is the coastal part of California. The artichoke capital is Castro Valley, right? We got, yeah, I think that's right, um, where they've just grown by the gazillions and also down in the Imperial Valley in Southern California, Southeastern California. Um, they're a big, bold, tropical looking or, or very elegant looking plant. Uh, take, each plant takes up about three feet of space. They're very attractive. So put them on the, in the backbone of your vegetable garden as an ornamental and just enjoy the chokes, the, which are the flower buds in the spring and the fall if you're lucky. And, um, and let them last for years. As long as they have reasonably good drainage, they can go on for, for many years. And uh, the other is asparagus, which is a very long-lived perennial plant. And those become available in garden centers in late November into January, depending on where you are. And asparagus is very cold tolerant, is my understanding. I believe they grow that even, or it's even become rather weedy up in, oh, even Michigan, I believe. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, you name it. I think they grow asparagus almost anywhere. It is commercially grown here in California as one of our specialty crops does extremely well here and very easy to grow as long as there's reasonably good drainage around the crown. So the suggestion on that one that I always make if you don't have a raised bed for it is just dig a trench, take the dirt from the trench, put it up next to the trench and plant on the up part. So the water drains down into the trench if you have a heavy rainfall year. That is to say, put it on the, on the ridge and let the, the trench drain away surplus moisture in the winter. I have plants of asparagus that I planted in the mid-1980s that are doing fine. They are in fact very big established clumps now. In that same area, I plant over a long area, about 30 feet or so, and the back half of that bed graded down to level with the soil around and those crowns rotted out during some of our heavy rainfall years. But the ones up high have come through and continued to prosper all these years later. So asparagus and artichokes are the two classics and you'll find them in garden centers typically bare root. In other words, divided clumps or bare roots uh, in the case of artichokes and asparagus respectively, typically around late November, December in California. The other thing that a lot of those nurseries get is rhubarb 
which does well here, although it's not as long lived as it is in colder climates, and things like horseradish, which will run all over your yard if you let it. So there's a there are perennial herbaceous herbs like horseradish. There are these perennial herbaceous vegetables, which you should give a sort of a separate bed to because they'll be there all year round. Even though you harvest at certain times of year, the plants will need to be there all year round. So you don't put them in the middle of where your tomatoes are gonna go, you put them on the edge and they can be very attractive plants. The fern, ferny foliage of asparagus is really pretty and the big bold leaves of artichokes are very dramatic. And they can even be alternated and grown in the same area. Pretty much, yeah. I can't think, of, except in yeah. the long run, they might start to compete with each other, but uh, I'd, yeah. I'd put my money on the asparagus so, in that situation. Now, it's interesting, <laughs> interesting to know so, that artichokes are being grown from seed. There are seed annual strains of artichokes. So those of you in colder climates, I don't know exactly how far down into the USDA zones this goes, but a long time ago, probably 20 or 30 years ago, California growers found that they could grow it as an annual crop in places like the Imperial Valley and then disc them under when the season was done, and that greatly reduced the amount of pesticide spraying they had to do because this one particular pest they were spraying for was a problem on perennial plantings of artichokes, but not on annual plantings. And so in the Imperial Valley, for example, they plant in December, really warm down there, or January to harvest later that same season, and then they plow them under. And so those seedling strains have become available in colder climates. If you've always wanted to grow an artichoke and you're listening in a place where you didn't think it was possible, ask at your local garden center or look online for the seeds of some of these. Get, them, get a good early head start on them probably indoors and then plant them out. There's a pretty good chance you can grow artichokes in places where you didn't think you used to be able to. I want to just mention a little bit about asparagus because most people know asparagus when you buy it in the grocery store and really don't understand how that plant grows. It's a fascinating plant. It has an underground collection of growing points. Now, Don calls it a crown, but we didn't call it that back in Michigan where we were growing these on the fence lines everywhere. Um, but then as, as each sprout comes up, you're going down and you're cutting that below the dirt. Uh, Carefully. Because the crown is underneath the dirt, very carefully, of course. But it's an incredibly cute plant. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's tasty, it's, it's robust, it's hearty, but it's also cute. Because when they, these shoots come up and we eat the, the young shoots, that's what we're eating. If you let those grow, which you do every year, you, you harvest some and then you let some grow. And it gets up, it gets tall, and then it gets feathery. And it's just an incredibly beautiful plant. If you've never looked at one of those, I encourage the listeners to go online, check out asparagus, and see what it looks like. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's, uh, the asparagus ferns that people grow both as houseplants and outdoor ornamentals uh, have that same kind of ferny, feathery foliage. And it's, they're very attractive. The springeri, the myeri, the retrofractus asparagus, there's a bunch of others. It's the same genus, it's just the one we eat. Um, and when it grows out, the plant, the, the shoots get about four or five feet long and they're very soft and ferny. And if you're limited for space, tie them up or put them along a fence and just have them be as a nice soft background texture against the fence. And then in the fall, they turn bright yellow. It's actually very pretty. And most people then cut them to the ground at that point. A lot of people like to mulch the beds with leaves or whatever as they go into the winter, which helps to enrich the soil. That's fine. That's great to do. And um, you can harvest for years. You do harvest only a fairly narrow window. They come up here in February. 
and I harvest into about the middle of March and then I let them grow out so I'm not depleting the, the root crown. Uh, but you can harvest for a few weeks of very tender shoots and then let them grow out and be an ornamental, attractive part of your landscape. All right, let's talk about choosing shrubs, hedges, screens, that sort yeah. of stuff. Now, we yeah, did a list for Rebecca, yep. and, and let's just talk about that a little bit more. Well, first of all, if you go to davisgardenshow.com, guess what? I posted the list there, so it's on there. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it's a quick list I made off the top of my head of evergreen shrubs that can tolerate. Her situation was partial shade, if I recall. And the idea was uh, some informal privacy or barrier or other purposes. So screening, I guess, would be the overall purpose, but not like a clipped hedge. If you're interested in a hedge um, and you're anywhere in, let's say, sunset zones 8, 9, 14 to 24, or USDA zone 9 and 10, and probably colder zones as well, you can go to my business website, redwoodbarn.com. And one of my more popular articles there is an 11-page list of hedges and screens plants for hedges and screens. And wherever you're listening, there's probably something on there you can grow uh, because it's kind of a, a fairly comprehensive list. But choosing them, uh, the first thing we need to know, she gave us that key information, is it full sun or is it partial shade or is it total shade? And uh, that's gonna determine to some extent what you choose. And I do wanna briefly mention one because of my own unique situation as editor of the magazine of the American Bamboo Society. Bamboo is a popular screening plant and it has advantages and drawbacks. The well-chosen bamboo, the non-running types, can be a very suitable privacy screen and only take up as much space as a large shrub. If you put in the running types, please be aware that those cause major conflicts between neighbors unless you make some effort to constrain them. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You'll find articles separately on my website about great ways to use running bamboos. For example, put them in a livestock trough that you've got taken the drain hole out of and just have a, a movable screen with a you know livestock trough with some running bamboo in it. But the clumping types are more suitable wherever you're listening. And there are clumping types of bamboo that can go all the way down to 20 degrees below zero. Fahrenheit. So there are types that you can grow even in much colder climates. That information is available not only on my business website at redwoodbarn.com, but at bamboo.org, where there's people all over the world who are bamboo aficionados who can tell you about great screening ideas for bamboo wherever you're listening. You can grow bamboo all the way up into New England. There's an active bamboo chapter all the way up there in, in the, in the uh, New England part of the United States. Also, there's generally a focus in these discussions on using native plants. And that would be one of the first things I would look at is wherever you're listening, what are some native shrubs that would be suitable? For California listeners, I've mentioned calscape.org, where you can just type in your zip code or your county or whatever, and up will pop. Uh, it's the usual search engine type of thing. You can put in a bunch of criteria and up will come the list of native plants for your area, I will say. I've said before, here we are in the valley grassland plant community of the valley floor here in the Sacramento Valley. It's going to be a short list when it comes to shrubs because we're valley grassland. Uh, your choices are going to primarily be bunch grasses, perennials, and, uh, and some riparian plants. That is to say plants that grow along streams and creeks and not very many evergreen shrubs. But if you broaden it a little bit, let's say you're listening in Davis or somewhere in Sacramento or something, if you go ahead and look at the plants in the oak woodland plant community. 
Oak woodlands are what you get into as you go uphill into the coast range and over into the Sierra, you will find more choices. So a couple of the shrubs we'll mention will be California natives that would be suitable for your use. Trying to stick strictly to natives to your region in many parts of California will limit your choices significantly, but there are some choices as long as you're, you broaden it to include, you know, the nearer plant community. 60 miles from here, we're in the oak woodland. Okay, that's close enough. <laughs> okay, a little, little flexibility with respect to your definition of native might be in order. Um, we have that list right in front of us, and I just wanted to mention a couple of them. I don't want to go over the whole list. It's there, and you can do some research on it. But moving down it alphabetically, we'll start with Abelia. Abelia grandiflora which is a shrub in the honeysuckle family, and it attracts hummingbirds. It's got a very interesting informal growth habit. One of my pet peeves is the way people abuse this poor plant. Grandiflora has white flowers. Edward Goucher has pink flowers. Otherwise, they look pretty similar. Shiny leaves, really attractive, interesting arching growth habit. And Grandiflora I chose for this list because it gets eight feet. Uh, if you let it go, if you don't prune it, you do see this clipped real hard, very commonly in landscapes, which in my opinion, pretty much ruins it. It'll take it, it'll take drought, and it'll take shade, it'll take sun, it'll take watering or not. It's very adaptable. It's one of those kinds of plants. So it's a great plant to be in an informal mixed planting of shrubs where you want something that gives a little seasonal color, draws some hummingbirds, maybe draws the big carpenter bees, and is real easy to care for. It doesn't have to be pruned in spite of the things that people like to do to it. So doing these alphabetically, I do want to mention one that I know is one of Lois's favorite plants, and there are places where this will be appropriate for people to consider in a mixed planting of shrubs, which is a butylon, sometimes called flowering maple. Now, Lois grows it as a house plant. Which is, <laughs> I grow lots of it outside. It's also called china bells in places. And, and flowering and maple have, and a couple yeah, other I have grown some inside. Um, and they do they do bloom a little bit all year long, but they're harder inside than they are out. Outside, yeah. it's just a piece of cake. Yeah, they're one of the easiest plants for us to grow, and they are, although they're technically considered subtropical, they're barely hit by cold here in the Sacramento Valley. Even up in the, in, as you get up to a little higher elevation, I'm sure any damage would be, it would recover quickly. I want to mention one of them in particular, tiger tail. My tiger tail of butylon is 10 by 10. That's 10 feet by 10 feet. And while it's not a dense shrub for privacy, it's mixed with some shrubs that provide privacy. It kind of leans on them for support, and it can have as many as 500 blooms on it all at once, and these kind of cycles of bloom. And the hummingbirds dive bomb each other when it's in bloom. So, well, it's not, it doesn't really fit quite in the category of evergreen plants for privacy. It can mix with evergreen plants for privacy very nicely. And you can prune the heck out of them. You can do almost anything you want to in a butylon. Uh, but alphabetically, let's move on to Arbutus. And if you happen to live in Madrone country, then gosh, you can grow Madrone, which is Arbutus menziesii. If you don't live in Madrone country, but you want a shrub with a shiny leaf and that beautiful red mahogany trunk and the little urn-shaped flowers at different times of year that attract hummingbirds, maybe even some fruit, there are other members of the genus Arbutus that are not native that are turning into really popular landscape shrubs and even trees for that kind of privacy because they're dense, they're solid looking things. The marina is a tree. That variety, which has got kind of unknown parentage, gets 20 to 40 feet, although it's very prunable, and it's pretty fast growing. The wholesalers love it, and we sell lots of those when someone comes in looking for an evergreen tree. But I've been selling more and more of the Arbutus variety called Oktoberfest, 
which is a dwarf version of the regular strawberry tree. You're gonna have a lot of fruit, a lot of these big orange fuzzy berries, and only certain kinds of birds like them because they're big. I don't know how a small songbird would deal with something that's an inch in diameter, but <laughs> your larger birds will knock them down and enjoy them. And, and the little songbirds won't be going for the seeds. They'll be going for the, the little aphids and the little bugs that are on the bush. So yes, they like it. And it was also the favorite hummingbird perch for the hummingbirds that are in our yard. Because yeah. out front, right out in front of Jim's window, there's one of these strawberry trees. And, and there's a couple of little twigs inside that, you know, they've, the leaves have died off, but they're still hanging in there. And that is its favorite perch right, right outside right. his window. It's beautiful. The, I've, I have pictures of flowers on the marina variety every month of the year. Some of the others will bloom off and on at different times. And uh, well, the regular form, Arbutus unido, the strawberry tree, was such a heavy fruit producer that it really fell out of favor. The compacta, which is prunable, has less fruit, obviously, because it's a smaller plant. And the Oktoberfest has a really attractive growth habit. Any of those, I do suggest, after they've been in the ground for three or four years, prune them up to open up the trunk because the, the bark is actually an extraordinary feature of this plant. It has the madrone-colored bark. So that's the genus Arbutus. Now, here in the Sacramento area, I would be remiss if I don't throw in camellias. They like partial shade. They can take a fair bit of sun, too. And of course, camellias are large evergreen plants with showy flowers in the winter. They need a little more water, perhaps, than some of these other things we talked about. So I don't remember how Rebecca was going to irrigate, but you would want to zone this so that these higher water plants would perhaps have a system that runs more frequently than the lower water plants that were otherwise basically describing. But camellias, you know, I can't think of a partial shade landscape with privacy shrubs that, where they wouldn't work. They're, they're a very popular plant all over California. I'm gonna throw so you're saying camellia, but mm -hmm. are there various species of camellia or is it all the same thing? There's, there's three or four that are common. The, the most common that people know is the Japanese, Camellia japonica, which are the big flowered ones that look practically like roses, you know, the very, very large, uh, double, heavily doubled ones. The Sasanqua camellias are fall blooming. And for those of you with smaller yards, they may be more suitable because they're more limber. You can spread them, almost train them on a fence like an espalier. You can grow them, uh, you can top them, they'll still kind of weep out and bloom. So as a, as a garden plant for smaller spaces, they might be more suitable because Japonica camellias get big. Drive around Sacramento in December, January, February, and you'll see uh, trees, <laughs> Japanese camellia trees. Capitol Park has some incredible okay. specimens. But the Sasanquas are another possibility. Okay. There are some other species as well. Ceanothus. I think that's a good one. Yeah, and it, it can take full sun or partial shade, and there's a whole bunch of kinds. Now, my I get nervous as a nursery owner when I sell Ceanothus because they're really easy to overwater. But in her situation, she is partial shade and slightly up in the foothills. You probably have better drainage than we do. And so there, that's really kind of where Ceanothus would naturally be from. You may have species that are local, and more to the point, there's a lot of cultivars you could consider, a huge group of plants. Yankee Point is just incredibly adaptable as a spreading ground cover form. Ray Hartman is a very strongly upright, big shrub that practically becomes a tree. Just two of the hundred or more cultivars of, of Ceanothus. I'm gonna throw in a deciduous shrub here because I think it mixes nicely in these kinds of plantings, and it blooms extremely early, which is the flowering quince. Shanomaly japonica, Shanomaly is C-H-A-E-N-O-M-E-L-E-S, Shanomaly japonica, and it blooms in my yard in late January. 
And even as you get up a little higher elevation, it's going to be February. It's one of the very first deciduous flowering shrubs to bloom. And well, it's deciduous, it drops its leaves here in late November and it's flowering in late January. So, you know, it fits nicely with these other things. Songbirds love them and all kinds of things do. Bees are all over them because they're the first thing blooming. And so it's a great plant for wildlife. And if you happen to be lucky enough, you get some fruit on your flowering quince. It's extremely aromatic and makes a wonderful jam. So that's a deciduous plant that I'd throw into this mix. I'm going to mention the three native shrubs that I think are worth looking into for this kind of a planting uh, because they're evergreen and they have some attractive seasonality and they're very tough. That's Garia elliptica, the silk tassel bush named for the interesting flowers, the um, California coffee berry, Ramnus californica, which is a big leathery textured leaf that has large red berries. And probably my favorite native shrub is the Toyon. California Christmas berry is a name that retailers like to put on it. Heteromily arbutifolia, arbutifolia. Leaf looks kind of like an arbutus. That's what that name tells you. And uh, Toyon is on every list of shrubs that attract beneficials because the flowers attract beneficial insects. And then the berries, which are small enough that even smaller songbirds will go after them, come on in December, or they come on earlier, they turn color in December, January, February, hanging on there all the way into March and April, these bright red berries. And there is a yellow golden berried form that's available sometimes at the UC Davis Arboretum sale, so I have a couple of them. They look particularly nice with the red form, that combination is very striking. And that's one of my favorite native shrubs because it's quite adaptable, very few pest problems, it grows about three feet a year, relatively upright growth habit. So you don't have to prune it or clip it or you know, it doesn't matter if you're putting them pretty close together. And very nice when you can let it grow naturally and become about a 12-foot bush of pretty solid foliage with all these attractive berries on it. So that's one of the best of the native shrubs. And I'll just mention a couple others that I would mix in with this. I'd be sure to stick an Osmanthus fragrans in there, the sweet olive with incredibly fragrant blooms. Um, if you got room for them and don't mind the deciduous character, some of the ribes, some of the currants, Native ones or non-native make a very good addition in the partial shade uh, or even more sun if, as long as you water them if you want them to have foliage in the summer. Don't worry about it. If, uh, if you put them in the drier end, they'll be partially deciduous, but very adaptable. And then I should probably throw in one more here, which is the whole group of viburnums, which listeners almost everywhere, there's probably a viburnum that's in your your plant palette in your region. The, uh, in our area, it's the Viburnum suspensum, the Sundanqua Viburnum. My plants I'm looking at out the window that I planted four years ago are eight feet tall. And that's a pretty good growth rate. They've grown just a little bit faster than my Pittosporum tobira, which I'll also throw in there. Uh, really adaptable, prunable if you happen to want to do it. Blossoms are fragrant in both cases, Pittosporum and the Sundanqua Viburnum. And they make a nice solid barrier without having to be pruned in order to achieve that. So I think that covers some of the, the, I think some of the most adaptable ones. A few of those you can plant in much colder climates than here. Some of them are native, a couple are deciduous. And what I'm recommending is do a mixed planting. People walk in every now and then looking for a hedge screening type of thing and they've gone to some website that's recommending a particular plant. And this is the newest, latest, greatest thing that gives us privacy, blah, blah, blah. They say, that's great. Every now and then we've done that and that particular plant has ended up getting a disease problem like Photinia gets fire blight sometimes. Um, so if you have a whole yard of Photinia and you're getting fire blight, you've got a problem on your hands. But if you've got 
xylosma, and then a group of photinia, and then some toyon, and then a group of photinia, and then repeat the toyon, and then have a ceanothus, then if you have a problem with one plant, it doesn't wipe out your whole privacy planting. So a mixture of species, as with everything, is a much better way to go. And it can be a lot more informal. If you've got room for it, if you've got the depth in your bed to do this, a mix of plants with some of the flowering things in the foreground, some of the interesting things that are softer or, or looser texture, like the butylon, where they're a little more hidden, but their blooms can poke out at you and attract the hummingbirds. And then the big, bold plants carefully placed so that they'll screen out whatever the view is you're trying to get rid of. That way it can grow and become its own little ecosystem. And you don't have to worry if some pest problem shows up that does damage to one particular species. And before we leave the topic, I would like to mention my very favorite screening plant, which is Xylosma. Yep. It's, it's evergreen. It will be as big as you want it to be or as short as you prune it to be. And the bees love it and yeah. it's gorgeous. Most people don't know it's really attractive to bees. Uh, oh, that's, yeah. a good, that's a good thing nowadays. Uh, every now and then I get a customer coming in who wants plants that don't draw bees. Maybe they have a bee allergy in the family or a bee phobia. And that's a very challenging conversation. But the good news is most people now are coming in going, I want to help the bees. Great. Xylosma <laughs> blooms in late summer and fall. You hardly notice the flowers. They aren't that showy, but you suddenly notice it's alive with honeybees and they're all over it. So, and the shiny xylosma, which is the common name on that, it's spelled with an X, X-Y-L-O-S-M-A. Yeah, you can clip it. You can prune it. You can train it like a tree. You can do nothing at all. And it becomes this great, big, lovely, sort of almost semi-weeping plant. And a very, very, very drought tolerant. I don't remember how cold it goes. I think we're about as cold in the USDA zone as you can grow xylosma. So if you're listening in, say, zone eight, probably marginal, zone seven, not going to work for you. It's about as cold hardy as an oleander, if that gives you a guide. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. 